And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When, in 2009, I traveled to East Africa to see one of my former youth who had been serving with a nonprofit organization there. Kristen Vogel had gone and was finishing up her second year of service in Uganda, and before she left, I wanted to go see what she had been a part of. And while I was there with Kristen, she introduced me to an organization called Cornerstone Leadership Academy. Now, Cornerstone Academies are kind of high-level boarding schools for high school students in Tanzania, Rwanda, and Uganda. And their mission is to create life-transforming learning environments that mold young men and women from disadvantaged backgrounds into future leaders in their countries, leaders who reflect the character qualities and the leadership principles from the life of Jesus. While I was there, I toured one of the academies, and I sat in on one of their weekly staff meetings. And the thing that impressed me most about this was that in each country that they operate within, they intentionally take in young men and women from different tribes and religious backgrounds within that country. When placed into their dorms, Cornerstone deliberately mixes the tribes and religions, forcing them to live as family while at school. They live together, eat together, study and play together. This is part of Cornerstone's intentional efforts towards a new generation of leaders who will hopefully transcend the years of ethnic and religious biases that have created so much conflict in their countries and communities inflamed and further developed by years of colonialism. Cornerstone is not asking these young people to deny their heritage, their culture, or their tribal affiliation. Those things are still celebrated and they're honored. Instead, they teach these future leaders that the tribe that they belong to is not the most important thing about them, nor is it the most essential thing about the other. What matters most is their humanity, ours and theirs. They teach these young people to appreciate and respect diversity without feeling threatened, less than, or afraid. They instill in them that the future well-being of their communities, their countries, the global community will be better when they remember that they're bound together. In his 1987 installation service as the Archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa, Desmond Tutu said the following in his sermon. If we could but recognize our common humanity, that we do belong together, that our destinies are bound up in one another's, that we can be free only together, that we can be human only together, then a South Africa would come into being where all of us lived harmoniously together as members of one family, the human family, God's family. You see, Archbishop Tutu and the leaders of Cornerstone Leadership Academy have witnessed firsthand in their beloved countries the horrendous violence, pain, hatred, and oppression that results from the devaluing and the dehumanizing of the other. 
And so when Cornerstone began its story in 1994, it gave birth to a different kind of school that they hope will address generations of brokenness in East Africa and beyond. And how do they hope to do this? By taking and uniting a diverse group of people in the ways of Jesus. When the early Christian church began its story in the first century, it gave birth to a new kind of faith community, one that they hoped would address brokenness in generations and communities to come. And how did they plan to do this? By uniting a diverse group of people in the ways of Jesus. In this sermon series, Broken Good News for Trouble or Trouble Times or Tough Times, we've looked at various passages from Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, kind of as a lens to look at brokenness that we experience or recognize in our world. And Paul sent this letter to guide them as they tried to figure out how to be this new kind of inclusive faith community living in a deeply segregated culture. You see, Jesus had entered our world. He had torn down walls and barriers and divisions between us and between God and one another. And it was difficult to do the same in the church, but that was what they were called to do. And so when I think of those early days of the church, I often think of Cornerstone, trying to unite people from different tribes and groups, even opposing groups under a shared mission. Through his teachings, through his letters, through his mentees, through his time with people, Paul guided this new experiment of an early church which gathered different tribes and cultures into being one family together. Nationalities weren't denied. Instead, they were reprioritized as secondary to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Paul taught them to respect diversity without feeling threatened, less than, or afraid. The future well-being of their communities, their countries, the global community, would be better if they could remember that they are bound together in Jesus for the glory of God and the good of the world. Time will tell about Cornerstone's impact as its graduates are now entering the country in leadership positions and workplaces. But we've got over 1,900 years to evaluate the church's impact. In those years, the global church has accomplished so much miraculous things through the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering God's people. Through its long history, the church has been a significant source of social services like education and medical care. It's been a place of inspiration for art and culture and philosophy, and it has been the motivator for countless good initiatives, both large and small, known and unknown. But the church has also contributed significantly to the brokenness. And I don't think it is unfair today to say that the church may be more known for the brokenness than the good. For much of his letter to the Romans, Paul makes clear the cause of this brokenness. Sin. Not our individual moral failings so much, but something more profound, our separation from God, our separation and isolation from one another, our self-serving attitudes that focus on our wants and desires over the needs of our neighbors, our tendency to circle up, to include, rather than open up. But thankfully, Paul has a cure for this brokenness. There is a glue that binds, he says, and it is 
love, agape love of God, which is seen in demonstration in Christ. A sacrificial, self-giving love that crosses borders and divisions and stretches to the margins. A love that doesn't depend on our own faithfulness, one that we can put our trust in. A love that's been freely given to us and to all people and from which nothing can ever separate us, as we've learned in Romans. And Paul spent the first 11 chapters of Romans making the case that regardless of the tribe, all are sinners in need of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All are welcome to Christ's table. Jews and Greeks. Hutus and Tutsis of Rwanda. The Sukuma and the Mwazi of Tanzania. The Baganda and the Ocholi of Uganda. Whoever you think might not be welcome at the table is welcome. Christ has thrown open the doors to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And now in chapter 12, where we're at today, after assuring us of God's transformational love that can and will change the world, Paul writes about living as Christians in that world. Living in response to God's mercy. In response to the love we have received. And that's why chapter 12 begins with the word, therefore. The most basic sense of this word, the meaning of it, is basically for that reason. And there's this old saying that if therefore is therefore, it's therefore a reason. And so you should ask, when I see therefore, what's it there for? And I'm glad you asked. After everything Paul has told us about our sin, the brokenness of the world, and how God's love is working to overcome it all, He says, therefore, for that reason, in response to that, to God's gift of grace to us through Christ, we should therefore present our bodies as living sacrifices. A gift back to God that is active and engaged in our world, ready to embody this love that Christ has shown to us. And Paul urges us not to be conformed to the world, to its hopelessness, to its brokenness, to its injustice, but to be transformed by the love of God, and by the renewing of our minds. And when God's love changes you, this is how you'll live, according to Paul. And living this way will both be part of your transformation and the result of your transformation and will help transform the world. Verse 9 starts with this command that is simple in words but really profound in meaning. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Unhypocritical is really what that means. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Our love, Paul says, in response to God's love for us, should be authentic, not hypocritical or superficial. As followers of Christ, our love should be marked by compassion, empathy, and selflessness, not just in our words, but more importantly in our actions, showing hospitality, showing humility, 
and a willingness to serve one another. And all of it comes in response to God showing that kind of love to us. But is that even possible? I mean, it sounds really like some magical place, right? The Roman church was so much bigger and more diverse ethnically, culturally, racially, theologically than many of the churches that Paul wrote to or started. It was these house churches that met separately with their settled views and opinions. Servants and masters were now included. Men and women were included. Those with privilege and power and those without were included. Different dialects, worship songs, and ways of doing things. And it would have been really easy for those communities to fuss about stuff, to disagree, to be suspicious of each other. But instead, Paul says they were to honor one another to share in one another's burdens, to welcome the stranger, and to respond to evil with good. It really does sound like a magical utopian place. Well, it is Labor Day, and it's the last day of summer, and many people make those final trips, and one popular destination that's magical each summer is Disney World in Florida, right? And when you hear and go to Disney World, one of the the, uh, popular parks is Epcot. And probably when you hear of Epcot, you think of that large golf ball there at the entrance of this park. But do you know what Epcot means and stands for? It's an acronym. Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. It's a weird name for a theme park, isn't it? But that is because at its very beginning... Epcot wasn't supposed to be a theme park, but instead a real, actual community. In the late 1950s and the early 60s, Disneyland in California had been up and running for a few years. And Walt Disney, the founder, became fascinated by the American city. And he began floating this idea of a utopian community where engineers and inventors and creative types could work and live together, sharing ideas to help usher in a better future. The experimental prototype Community of Tomorrow, Walt's passion project, was to be a significant part of a new park in Florida when it opened. And Walt envisioned a genuine city where real people lived together devoid of crime and unemployment and those pesky automobiles which cause pollution and congestion. And people could come and visit. It was like reality TV before reality TV and without a TV. But then Walt died. And the executives weren't really keen on the idea the whole way through, and they weren't sure how to enforce it and put it into action, so it went to the back burner when Disney World opened in 1971. But in 1982, Epcot opened, not as a utopian city where people lived and worked together, but as a theme park focused on innovation and technology. Epcot was birthed as an experiment to show the world what was possible. And in some ways, it retains part of that purpose still today. But isn't that kind of like the church? An experiment to show off to the world what is possible what the kingdom of God here and now could look like if we work and live together, sharing in the work that ushers in a better future. Epcot may have Disney magic, but that wasn't enough to create such a community. But friends, we have something much more powerful than Disney magic. We have love. 
And Paul asserts that if Christians allow agape love to govern all of our interactions with others, then we can be the community that Christ calls us to be. Not perfectly, for we still struggle with sin, as Paul has said throughout this letter. But that doesn't mean we quit working towards this dream in the here and now. Given God's mercy toward us, Paul says it is our spiritual act of worship to live lives of love the way God has loved us. And we trust God with the rest. I love to go on the road with Steve Hartman. Steve is a storyteller with CBS Evening News, and he travels around the U.S. sharing positive, uplifting stories of humanity at its very best. And every Friday night on the CBS CBS Evening News, the very last segment is On the Road with Steve Hartman. And in February this year, he told a heartwarming story about kindness from a little town in, in Alabama. It all started about 10 years ago when an anonymous man approached a local pharmacist and asked if there were people who could not afford their prescription medications. And when she confirmed that this was definitely a common issue, the man handed her a $100 bill with three simple conditions. One, she could not tell his name. Two, he didn't want to know anything about those receiving the money. And three, she was to tell them it was a blessing from God. Those were the three stipulations. And this anonymous benefactor continued to donate $100 bills for over 10 years to help those who struggled to pay their prescriptions in their community. And for years, the identity of the donor remained a secret until his death this past year, when his story was revealed by his children who learned about it right before his death. The man's name was Hody Childress, an Air Force veteran and a local farmer. Childress was described as a man with a rich heart, although not wealthy in terms of material wealth. Over the years, he spent over $10,000 to assist others in town with prescription costs. Childress's kindness inspired people to donate and establish similar funds at their pharmacies. I think what impressed me most about this story was not Mr. Childress's generosity, although he was most certainly generous. It was not his desire to remain anonymous, which is indeed impressive in a world in which we want to take credit and get known for good things we do. What impressed me most was his request not to know anything about the recipients. He did not ask to assess their need or judge their worth. He didn't ask if they were foolish with their money, deserving or believing in God. Mr. Childress simply did what he knew he could do, which was given God's generous mercy to him to be generous to others as an act of worship and to trust God with the rest. In chapter 12, Paul sets a pretty high bar regarding love. But I want you to remember, Paul has personally undergone this transformation because of Christ. Remember when we first met Paul, he is quick and enthusiastic to judge and legally persecute those threatening what he believed to be true. Those he called his enemies. But then the love of God in Christ Jesus called him to repentance and transformed Paul from a young hothead to a seasoned advocate for love. 
And this is the Paul who now tells us, if you see your enemy hungry, buy him lunch. If you see your enemy thirsty, give them a drink. Because of God's mercy, Paul's life is transformed forever, and genuine sacrificial love is now his spiritual act of worship. And if Christ can do that to Paul, and just maybe he could do that to your enemy, and may, just maybe he could do that for you and me too. Yet Paul knows that he cannot transform the world all by himself. It will take a community. Romans 12, all these calls to actions that are throughout this chapter are all in the plural meaning. Biblical scholar Mary Hinkle Shore suggests that Paul is saying with that intentional grammar, don't try this on your own. Jesus began a great community experiment we call the church to show the world what is possible and what the kingdom of God here and now could look like if we live lives of sacrificial love. But we need Christ and we need one another to do it. The founders of Cornerstone believe that genuine love can heal the brokenness and division in their countries. They are raising the next generation of diverse leaders in East Africa in the ways of Jesus to see what love can do. At this church, we believe genuine love can be good news for tough times. We believe genuine love can heal brokenness. We do believe that diverse people who the world tries to separate can unite in the ways of Jesus, to see what love can do. And friends, given God's generous mercy and embracing what God has done for us, we take our everyday, ordinary lives and we place them before God as an offering. We learn to love from the center of who we are, trusting God with the rest, believing that living this way will transform us and others for the glory of God and the good of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Generous and merciful God, how grateful we are to be loved so deeply and so unconditionally by you. Not because what we've done or not done, but because of who you are, and what you've done. And we're grateful this is true for everyone, for if not, it would not be true for anyone, for no one is deserving. You are generous in mercy. Therefore, God, we want to be generous in mercy too. But we often fail. And so help us remember that you are also generous in grace too. And we should be as well, both with others and ourselves, as we journey together in the ways of Christ. God of love, heal our brokenness within us and around us. Help us to see that we are invited to be a part of that healing, empowered by your spirit, joining you, transformed by your love, as we place our everyday lives before you as our act of worship. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. During our response time, we invite you to respond to God, whether from your seat 
whether to come to the lobby to pray with myself or one of the deacon leaders or to respond as we sing together. We pray that God has been at work in our lives, especially throughout this series. We know so many of us are dealing with brokenness in a variety of ways. And if that's your story and you would like prayer or just guidance along the way, we are here for you. We also want to invite you, if you're looking for a church home to be a part of, would love to visit with you during that time or after the service, or if you have questions about Jesus and what the life of Jesus means for your life, how his love can transform you, we would love to tell you about the hope that we have in Christ. Let's respond now to the Lord. <laughs> 